Good morning. Our scripture reading from today is from the book of Obadiah. And if you have not heard of it, it is right in the middle of the Old Testament. It's a prophet. And so just a quick note before we read the text today, Obadiah is one of the Lord's prophets and he's speaking a word of destruction against Edom. And Edom descends from Esau, which is the the brother of Jacob. And so when you hear words like Esau and Edom, that's one group of people. And then when you hear Jacob, my people, my holy people, Jerusalem, Judah, that's referencing God's people. So listen as the Holy Spirit speaks through the prophet Obadiah this morning. Starting in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother, and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off the fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape And it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. This is the, 
Oh, there's one more part. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, William. Is he awake or is he asleep for that? In and out. In and out. All right. Good morning, family. Let's pray, and uh, we'll get right down to work. Father, we want to take a moment and uh, work with our, our bodies to uh, bring ourselves into unison so that our, we would physically adopt a posture that would reflect where we should be spiritually and uh, emotionally even uh, and in our minds. And so, Father, we want to open our hands to you, posturing ourselves as your kids, and with open hands reminding ourselves that we are we're needy kids. Uh, we are here today not because we're good people or better people, but because we are, we're needy people. We are created in your image, and we are created to receive everything from you. And even as we say that, we acknowledge that we have, at so many times this week, run to substitute gods to find the things that we can only find in you, as is our, our rebel nature. But we thank you that even as we run away, you are a faithful father who runs towards us, rescues us, brings us back home, and in spite of our many wanderings, still chooses to give us good gifts out of your kindness and your mercy. And so where we have deserved judgment this week, we look back to the cross and we remember that Jesus took all judgment in our place so that even in our worst of moments as your kids now, it's just mercy after mercy after kindness after goodness, uh, all from the depth of your undying love for us. And so Father, please give us what we need this morning. We pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done, that you would give us today the bread that our souls needs, that you need, that you would lead us to forgive those who have sinned against us even as you have so generously forgiven us. Deliver us from the temptation that we run after. Rescue us from the evil that we would pursue. And Father, remind us again this morning, your kingdom, your power, your glory, not our glory, definitely not our power, and that's good, and not our own little mini kingdoms. So please rescue us from our tendencies to live for ourselves and bring us back into the joy of living for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me begin with a question this morning. If you were to consider all of the days in your life, either days past or days yet to come, what day for you would you say most captures your imagination? Some of us have had some really traumatic experiences in life, so Perhaps our imaginations are captivated more by a day that we have endured, and we still see it shaping our future. Uh, though maybe all of us have that kind of a story, there are still future days that we look to, and they capture our imagination. And what I mean by capture our imagination is that I mean they shape decisions that we make today because we know that day is coming. For example, it's PCS season, so some of you have that rotation day. That is capturing some of y'all's imagination in, in big ways that is shaping the way that you live right now. Some of you wish a rotation day could capture your imagination. 
imagination right now. Retirement might be a day for some of you, EASing. Mother's Day, fellas, is two weeks, two weeks away, I think. Hmm? A warning, right. Encouragement. I like to consider that an encouragement. We'll warn next week. Um, let that capture your imagination, boys. Um, they don't have to be big days. I like being captured by little days. So for me, uh, a month ago, opening day of the baseball season captured my imagination. This Thursday and Friday coming should be a national holiday. It's draft day for the NFL. That, that captures my imagination. We're all captivated in our imaginations by days yet to come. This morning, I want to introduce you to a day that you may be completely unaware of, but this day should be the dominant day in your imagination. It's good that we, it's one of God's kindnesses toward, to us that we can live in a world where there are different days that can, that can capture our imagination and shape the way we live. How beautiful is that? Life did not have to be designed that way, but it is. That's a kindness of God. But of all the days that shape the way you live now, the one that we together may be most unaware of, yet should be most captivated by, is a little-known day talked about by a little-known dude or a little-known man with a little-known message. Lauren already kind of introduced us to him. And honestly, Obadiah is just kind of going to hang out on the side. It's not even about Obadiah. It's about the day that he describes. If you've never heard of this day, it's known as the day of the Lord. Now, throughout history, there have been lots of lowercase days of the Lord, and they all point to the one future uh, big day of the Lord. And uh, we'll get to that, but just so you know, like there's one future day of the Lord that's a really big deal. Throughout history, there have been many days of the Lord where he has acted in history for a people's good and to judge evil, and they all point to a future day coming. So Obadiah, do you know he's the shortest in all of the Old Testament books? Um, and actually, finishing John, we spent a little while in John, right? Long, long book. So as I was thinking about where we would go next, I thought, you know what? I bet there are a lot of little books in the Bible that most of us have never heard a sermon preached from, and they just get ignored because they're little. In fact, he belongs to a collection of prophets. What are they called? Minor. Minor. No big deal. It's just Obadiah. <laughs> Obadiah. Um, do you know Obadiah's the only Old Testament book that's not quoted in the New Testament? Imagine how Obadiah feels, boys. Like, imagine. He's like, I authored a book in the Bible, and you couldn't even quote me in the New Testament. They probably, they probably, uh, they may be talking about that right now. Um, Short, not quoted. Obadiah simply means servant of the Lord or worshiper of the Lord. But beyond that, beyond the meaning of his name, we don't know anything about the guy. And I think Obadiah would be okay with that. What we need to know about is this day that he introduces us to, the day of the Lord. Okay, so that's what we're going to find out about this morning in the context of his book. Now, to kind of frame our conversation, here's the big idea, super simple this week, and I'll tell you why. And here it is. There's my big idea. The day of the Lord is, 
And what I hope for us to gain from that is an understanding that there is a day known as the day of the Lord. It's not an idea. It's not a theory. It's not a, uh, just a theological concept. If God has a calendar, there's a day circled on that calendar, the day of the Lord. And it's future, and it's a really big deal. The day of the Lord is. It's a day, and it's coming. Now, just a side note. Sometimes in scripture, the word day is used to refer to a literal 24-hour day. Sometimes the word day is used to refer to a season, a string of days. Could the day of the Lord be a literal 24-hour day? Sure, it certainly could. I tend to think, though, the day of the Lord points to a season of days strung together in which God does a lot of work, and I'm going to show you what that work is, okay? So it's a season yet to come, and it's circled on God's calendar, and it should capture our imagination and shape the way that we live today and tomorrow. Here's how we will kind of frame Obadiah's only chapter, only chapter, Three words. If you want to remember the message of the book, I think you can do it in three words, and then I'll give you a little sentence to go with each. But here they are, down, done, and drunk. Down, uh, God simply says, on the day of the Lord, I'm going to bring you down. I, God says, will bring you down. I'm going to bring you down. There's a reason why he's going to bring some people down. And it's because something has been done. It's that a violence has been done. I'm going to show that to you as well. And then finally, drunk. Uh, Maybe not the way that you're imagining the word right now. But in the narrative, um, Obadiah tells us of a time where God's people were absolutely wrecked. We'll see Edom's role in that. And then they essentially celebrated in a... God's people's holy place, uh, drinking, throwing a victory party, if you will, celebrating the downfall of their relatives. And God said, on the day of the Lord, in the same way that Edom drank in victory, all those who have lived a life of rebellion against me will drink my judgment like Edom drank wine beyond their capacity to bear. I'm just gonna keep pouring it out and they will just keep swallowing and they won't be able to come up for air. It's gonna happen on the day of the Lord, okay? Down, done, and drunk. Now, before we move into uh, the storyline of Obadiah, let me just kind of give you a little more framework to think about the day of the Lord, okay? And I'm sorry, but I like to do this. Maybe here are four words to help you remember uh, moving forward. Necessary, near nations, and nearly inescapable. So the day of the Lord is necessary, okay? This is not an unnecessary day that we're talking about, and here's why it is necessary. Verse 10, the day of the Lord is necessary because of violence done to your brother Jacob. Now that statement's made to Edom. You personally have not done violence to a brother named Jacob, though some of you may have a brother named Jacob, and you have done him violence, okay? That's God's statement to Edom, but the larger statement is true for us. We have all done violence. The 
storyline of scripture is one long narrative of violence done against image bearers of God because of our rebellion against the God who created us. Now you're like, no, I'm not a violent person. I haven't done physical violence. Perhaps not. It's helpful for us to know that that word violence is big enough to include, it's more of a reference to evil generally. Now it leans towards like violent evil, like physical violence, but the word is broad enough to encompass things like emotional violence or verbal violence, relational violence, right? And the larger point is there, any evil that we do is not only a sin against God, it is always a sin against other people, even when we think it is private. And so God creates us in his image to live for his glory and the good of others. When we turn in on ourselves in rebellion, like we have all done, we live for our own glory. And if you choose the virtue of living for your own glory, or I should say the value, it's not a virtue, but it's a cultural value of living for your own glory, you will leave a wake behind you of doing violence to other people. You can't live for your own glory without doing violence to other people because other people have to go down so you can go up. It's a violence done. So in my own life, I have a track record of violence done through my words, through my thoughts, and through my deeds. And you do too. And the day of the, the Lord is necessary because God is just. And he has seen every violent act in the history of the world. He has seen every injustice. And no injustice escapes his attention. And no act of violence, whether it's physical, emotional, verbal, spiritual, escapes his gaze. And so the day of the Lord is necessary because we have done violence and because God himself is just. It's necessary, it's also near. Look at verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near. That word near doesn't necessarily mean it's happening tomorrow. It's a word that communicates imminence, meaning the day of the Lord is on the calendar and it's not coming off. It's a future day and there won't be a change in plans. It's near, it's going to happen. There's no plan B. There's a plan A, and as part of the plan A, there's going to be this day known as the day of the Lord. Now, it's also near in the sense of it's weighty. It has, uh, should have incredible influence in the way that we live. In other words, when God says something is near, what he's saying to you is this matters deeply to you, and if you are wise, you will listen and respond and live a life shaped by the reality of this coming day. It's near, okay? So it's necessary because we've done violent, violence. It's near, and it's for the nations. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, not just some. Now, throughout Scripture, uh, that word nations is used categorically to communicate uh, or to describe anybody who is outside of God's rescued-in family. So that would be... All of us prior to being rescued to, uh, by Jesus, and if you have not yet believed in Jesus as your rescuing king, as you read scripture when you encounter the word nations, you need to understand that you are a part of the people group that is being described. Anybody outside of God's rescuing family. So the day of the Lord is for the nations. It's also nearly inescapable. We see this in verses 16 to 17. Uh, I already kind of quoted this for you. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, 
So all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow. The sense is it's just going to keep coming wave after wave after wave. And when they are done drinking, it will be as though they had never been. But look at the beginning of verse 17. There's good news even in a book describing such a serious judgment. Look at this. In Mount Zion, there will be those who will escape. The day of the Lord, in God's kindness, he offers escape for all of those of us who have lived any moment of rebellion, even if you have done one act of violence. We are deserving of God's judgment, but in his kindness, he makes a way of escape. It's nearly inescapable, but it is escapable. Now, I, uh, this may help us too. I just wanted to put all these thoughts together into one simple definition for us. We're like, all right, what is, then what is the day of the Lord then? Here's, here's my working definition. The day of the Lord is when King Jesus returns, <clears throat> executing final judgment and establishing his forever kingdom. It's both things. So the day of the Lord isn't just bad. Actually, quite the opposite. The day of the Lord is really good news. It's good that justice will be executed. What a terrible world if there was no justice. What a terrible world if the injustices that you have suffered go unaddressed forever. What a horrible place. What a horrible place if we live in a world where children can be trafficked and abused and all of those involved can get away in this lifetime and the next. No thank you. It's good news. And it's good news because at the day of the Lord, as judgment is executed, Jesus will also establish his forever kingdom, which one last little line that I want to give you. Um, this is what I really like to think of when I think of the day of the Lord here. It says, injustice confronted finally, and then injustice crowned forever, okay? So injustice will be confronted finally and fully, all injustice of all, in, of all time will be confronted by Jesus and judgment will be poured out, finally and fully. That's really good news, guys. I mean, it's really good news unless we have confessed injustice. In which case, personally, then it would not be good news. It would be foreboding news for us. And the good news of the day of the Lord, just as injustice is confronted, injustice... Jesus is crowned and his forever kingdom is ushered in. And the good news is the, the day of the Lord is this dividing line in history where all previous injustices will be addressed and no injustice will happen again. There will not be violence done against each other in Jesus' perfect forever kingdom. That's really good news for us. Now, let's get into Obadiah. We'll spend the rest of our time walking through the narrative. Uh, we're gonna see how Obadiah's message relates directly to Edom, but remember, even though as we're working our way through, like I'm not, I'm not Edom, so what bearing does this have on me? Remember what we read late in the book where Obadiah says, the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. So what he's saying is, as we read Edom's story, 
we are looking in a mirror of sorts. Edom is representative of all of us in our rebellion. And the judgment they experienced is kind of a foreshadowing of the judgment that anybody will experience if they stand in opposition to Jesus, the true and just king. All right, Edom. A little context. Um, Lauren did a good job of explaining briefly the people that are being talked about here. Some of you like maps. Here's a little map. You're curious about where the Edomites lived. They were kind of, um, so we just finished the Gospel of John, right? So all of the narratives that we read in the Gospel of John took place just north, essentially, of where the Edomites lived. So just south of the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, and you can see kind of the modern day nations that are represented there. Now you're looking at the map and you're like, I've never been there before. Have any of you ever been there before? Okay, some of you have been there before. Have you been to the specific place I'm about to talk about? May, I bet you have, all right, here we go. So listen, shh, Teresa may have been, but whether you know it or not, you all have been too. And a very well-known guide took all of you there many years ago. Actually, two well-known guides, and here they are, right here. Uh, you have all been to the land of Edom. You've all been. You haven't been, Lauren? Okay, you got to remedy that. You have to work on that. All right, so now the next picture to zoom out, here's what you were looking at in that shot in the movie. Uh, many of you would know that as Petra. You're going to see it here, I think, it's the Hebrew word, I think it shows up here as Sela or Sela, S-E-L-A, uh, same name as Petra, um, these, these rocks, right? They, they lived in these cities of rocks carved into this cliff face, insane. I would love to go inside of that thing like the good doctor did and explore, wouldn't you? So you've been, you've been, you have been to the land we are about to read of. Where do they come from? Let me just give you a couple verses from Genesis to kind of back up what Lauren explained for us. I remember when Jacob and Esau were born. Here's their birth announcement. This was in the newspaper. Hey, the first one came out all red. Don't they all though? But his red was different. All his, look, look at this. Some of you are married to this guy. All his body like a hairy coat. So they called his name Esau. That's Genesis 25, uh, two more for you. Here's a little bit later, Genesis 25, 30. Uh, you'll notice Edom is known, it's, it's, it's closely related to the word red, okay? Edom, red. Uh, so you already saw about Esau's birth. Esau's the father of all of Edom. And then remember this story, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat of that red stew. Did you know that was in there? For I am exhausted. Now look at the parenthetical comment. Therefore, his name was called Edom, like the red stuck. And then you already saw the picture of Petra, right? What color was that sandstone? It was like reddish, right? There's a ton of red. So I'm a little weird. I remember things differently. Let me just tell you how I remember Obadiah now based on, you got all that context now with the redness, right? Any August Burns red fans in the room? A couple ABRs. So uh, red, we've got our red. Obadiah, I just, instead of ABR, it's OBR, Obadiah Burns Red. Like it is just, his book is one big burn, if you will, on the people of Edom, okay? So just very simple. If anybody ever asks you, what's Obadiah, what's that all about? OBR, you got it. Obadiah burns red, okay? The whole thing. All right, let's get back to the serious stuff. 
Here's really the background behind the whole narrative. This is Genesis 27. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my dad are approaching. And when they are done, I will kill my brother Jacob. Now that anger and that hostility, there's a violence, right? There's a violence. We have said those very words in our own heart. I'm going to kill you. Though maybe you didn't mean it that you would physically kill, Jesus in the Gospels would say, if we have gone there in our heart, it's as though we have murdered a person already. Fam, we have all done violence. Okay? We're, we're, when we look at Edom's story, we're looking in a mirror. Generation after generation, they did violence to each other as sons and grandsons and daughters and granddaughters were born They went to war with each other. You can read all through the kings. King Saul went to war against Edom. He was never particularly successful. His son David picked up the sword and went to war against Edom. He conquered him in a bloody kind of way. But a member of the royal family survived, escapes, and comes back in David's son Solomon's reign. And and, And Edom was reborn in a way. And they just go right back at the family brawl. And then all through history, there's bloody incursion after bloody incursion back and forth. They were allies at one point, and then the alliance was betrayed. And the violence continues. So let's, let's pick up the narrative here in Obadiah with the first piece of our, our big idea. Um, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to take you down. Verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, you will be utterly despised. God says on the day of the Lord, if you have lived life as though you are big and bigger than other people, I'm going to make you small. Despised meaning of Edom, that they would cease to exist as a people. That's what he means there. They would cease to exist as a nation, which they did historically. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. Right? That makes sense because we just saw where they lived. In your lofty dwelling, they, man, they had a secure neighborhood. Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. On the day of the Lord, all those of us who have ever asked the question, who's going to bring me down? All those of us who have looked at other people and said, you won't bring me down. All those of us who have lived with inflated senses of ego and self and have compared ourselves against other people and used other people to make ourselves big as a platform for our success, all of those violences, when we ask who will bring me down and we answer to ourselves, no one. God in the background says every time that question goes through our mind, I'm going to bring you down. I will bring you down. How low is he going to bring us? How thorough will that judgment be? Look at verse 5. Obadiah is going to use a little poetry to kind of describe what that experience will be like. And so he tells a little side story, if you will. He's like, all right, Edom, listen. Let's talk about when you're going to come down. If, if thieves came to you 
right? If plunderers came to your house at nighttime, that had been bad for you, right? You'd, you, would, you would be hurt by that. But would they not take only enough for themselves? Yeah, a bad guy breaks into your house. He has a limited capacity. He takes what he wants and he gets out of there. Can't take it all. Uh, likewise, if grape gatherers came to you and they harvested your field, wouldn't they leave the gleanings? Yeah, by their cultural law, a grape gatherer would come, take everything out of the middle field, but they would have to leave stuff around the edges for those who were in poverty. So they wouldn't take it all. But then he says in verse six, it's not gonna be like that on the day of the Lord. How Esau, or Edom's people, or we can take that a step further, Esau, representative of Edom, representative of all those who have rebelled against God and done violence, they will be pillaged, his treasures sought out. In other words, the day of the Lord will be like a robber breaking into a house and taking the time to go to every secret place and taking everything out of the home and leaving nothing behind. It will be full and it will be final, it will be complete. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. In other words, he is saying of Edom, when their day of the Lord would come, even their allies would turn against them, and they did. Uh, we know that Edom participated in the downfall of God's people, and in order to do that, they had to partner themselves uh, with the Babylonians. We know that not too many decades later, historically, you can go look this up, it was the Babylonians themselves that really brought the Edomites to their knees, and then a group of people known as the Nabataeans came in and basically made it final, and historians would say essentially wiped Edom from the history books as though they had never existed. Like this came true decades later. Now notice what Obadiah says, verse eight, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, look at what, he's, what he says he's gonna do to Edom. I'm gonna destroy the wise men out of, of Edom, so we have wisdom and understanding out of Mount Esau. So now we have understanding, wisdom and understanding. And verse nine, and your mighty men will be dis dismayed, O Taman. Taman was a, a strong city for Edom so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So what are the three things that God points out will happen to them on the day of the Lord? Their wisdom will be brought to nothing, their cultural wisdom, their cultural sense of understanding like we know better will be uh, shown to be what it is, nothing, God will bring it to nothing. And maybe what we can most relate to culturally in this room, their strength. We look around um, and our foreign policy our sense of being existing in a theater, which is not even our home, we would say, who's gonna bring us down here? Nobody. This is our time in history. Okay, so we can relate to Edom's sense of security and strength. And God says, on the day of the Lord, I will, dis I will take away every three, or all three of those things, wisdom, knowledge, and strength. They will be brought to nothing on the day of the Lord. Some of us need to hear that word because we know better. And in our wisdom, there's no way there's a God. There's no way this is true. There's no way this is historically accurate. Uh, certainly we're wiser than people who lived th thousands of years ago. I know more. I'm educated enough. I don't need religion. I don't need God, right? I'm strong. I'm self-sustaining. I'm self-sufficient. I am the master of my destiny, the captain of my fate. 
All of these cultural values, God says, on the day of the Lord will be brought to nothing. Our understanding, our wisdom, and our strength. So fam, if you don't remember anything else, remember as it, when it comes to the day of the Lord, God stands surveying all of history and for every mouth that has ever uttered, for every mind that has ever thought, who will bring me down? God silently in the background answers, I will, and I am going to bring you down. I'm going to bring you down because of the violence done. Why, why is that necessary? Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Now, we talked about this a little bit already, so let's press in the narrative to see specifically what the violence was that Edom committed against God's people. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So most scholars believe what Obadiah is recounting here took place in 587 BC, okay, so sixth century, and ba the Babylonians came against God's people as an invading army, and Edom viewed it as an opportunity. So they joined the invading forces and took advantage of God's people as they were being destroyed. Now, listen, uh, and so Obadiah says, you are just like one of them. You came alongside of them. Now, notice the, the change in verse 12 where it shifts, where Obadiah is like, you were doing these things. Now look in verse 12 where he's like, um, and then there's this long list of things, but don't do this and don't do that. He's not threatening, hey, in the, you did this once, now in the future don't do these things. He's actually still recounting what they had done wrong. We do this when we parent, right? My two boys get in a scuffle, I break it up, I go outside with one of them and I look him in the eyes and I'm like, son, you, don't, you do not hit your brother in the face. Son, you do not kick, you fill it in. Son, you do not X, you do not Y, you do not Z. I'm addressing stuff that is already happening kind of rehearsing with my son the family values, if you will. And that's exactly what's going on here. God through Obadiah says, don't gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. In other words, they had, they had done all these things. Don't gloat over his disaster. Don't loot his wealth. Don't stand, look at what they did in verse 14. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Better word would be refugees. Don't cut off his uh, refugees like you did. And don't hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. In other words, Edom, as the Babylonians were overrunning Judah, they position, positioned themselves strategically at escape points and snatched their relatives up. And their relatives would have imagined, okay, safety. And then they marched them right over to the camps where they were sorted out and they were paid off for the people they delivered. They participated in this violence. So why is the day of the Lord necessary? Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Now there's two pieces here. First of all, just the acknowledgement that just as the day of the Lord was necess necessary for them, there is a day of the Lord that is necessary still for all of the violence that we and others throughout human history have done. 
It's necessary. But there's also a word of hope here for God's people. And what is that? Look at this long list. That's an incredible list, right? I imagine God's people, as they were suffering all of these things, thought to themselves, where is God now? Why does he let this stuff happen? If God were really good, if God were really just, if God were really faithful, why, why, why? Why these wounds, why these scars, and why do evil people always seem to get away with injustice? Where is the justice in our broken world? And God is present the entire time, seeing and keeping a record of every secret injustice done. There is no such thing in our world as a fully secret injustice. Every injustice that you have borne is known by a just God. And at the day of the Lord, he will pour out his judgment on the on the perpetrators of every single injustice experienced in this world through all of history. Every single one. I want to point out one more thing in verse 10. Notice he says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you. Fam, there's a word of warning there too for those of us who have yet to confess injustice is committed and turn to Jesus as our rescuing king. Because for right now, the injustices that you have committed, most of them are concealed in secrecy um, in so many different ways. Maybe the easiest way to talk about that now is um, because it's just so real for so many of us, browsing history, for example. I mean, now you have the luxury of using a private browser, which keeps your activity a little bit more secure, but still you're so paranoid about your injustices being found out that even after using a private browser, you still find it a way to delete cookies and uh, delete browsing history and all the things. We always cover our injustices committed in secrecy. That's, that's, that's what we do. That's in our rebel nature family, on the day of the Lord, because of the violences that we have done against our brothers and sisters, secrecy will no longer cover us, verse 10 says. Our secrecy will be replaced with shame, meaning every deed, every thought done in secret, perceived secret, we should call it perceived secrecy, where maybe another person does not know. The God of the universe knows and every seeker will be brought into the light and secret, a covering of secrecy will be replaced by a covering of shame on the day of the Lord. I'm gonna bring you down because of violence done and you're gonna drink down judgment. Let's finish in verses 15 to 18. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, nearly inescapable. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and shall be as though they never had been. So on the day of the Lord, God is going to pour out his judgment. And Obadiah chooses to talk about it in a way that it will be, uh, and scripture in other places talks about it this way, as though it's a cup of God's wrath, right? A cup of God's judgment. And all those who have never confessed injustices committed and never turned to Jesus as their rescuing king 
uh, will have a cup of God's judgment placed at their mouths and will be unable to turn away from that judgment. You won't want to drink it down, but God says, on the day of the Lord, I will tip that cup and I will pour it into their open mouth and they will want to gasp for air instead of drinking down my judgment but the judgment will just roll down and it will be a bottomless cup. It will never have to be refilled. It will just stay up and it will just go down the throat and down the throat. It will drink until they can't drink anymore. Fully judged, forever cut off. That's a pretty sobering picture, fam. That's the day of the Lord, a piece of the day of the Lord. And if we are like Edom, and we are, and we have committed violences against God and other people, then this is what the day of the Lord holds in store for us. A very unpleasant experience, but a just experience, justice done, a necessary justice done. Notice where this drinking is happening. He says, on my holy mountain. In other words, Jerusalem, where the Edomites celebrated the downfall of God's people and just drank it up, threw a party, dancing on the graves of God's people. So a city that was destroyed and had become a place of destruction was going to become a scene of judgment you're like, well, where in the world is the good news of the gospel in all of that? Well, fam, we just finished the gospel according to John. And a few weeks ago, what city did Jesus ride into on a servant's donkey? Where did he go? Right here. He went to Jerusalem. And what did Jesus do in Jerusalem? Remember the garden? Remember the prayer that he prayed? Remember there was a cup that he talked about? And remember how anxiety-inducing that cup was where Jesus would pray to the Father and say, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. He knew what he was about to drink down, and he said, I don't want this. I don't want to experience this at all, but if it's your will, I will do it. And do you know what cup Jesus was getting ready to drink down? The cup of God's wrath. And when Jesus went to the cross, you know what cup he threw back? Yours. And he drank down every last ounce of God's righteous judgment that you and I deserve. So that when the day of the Lord comes, if you will repent of your violences done and turn to Jesus as your substitute and rescuing king, there will not be a cup of God's judgment pressed against your lips. Rather, you will have a way of escape. That's what verse 17 says. But in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. That is the good news of the gospel. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. 
We deserve judgment, but God in his goodness and his patience and his love says, but I'm gonna put Jesus in your place. And the cup that you deserve to drink down, Jesus is going to drink it to the last drop, wipe it with his finger and lick even that part off so you don't have to taste one ounce of my judgment. And all you will taste instead is mercy and goodness and kindness. Guys, Jesus is the way of escape out of the day of the Lord as a day of judgment for us. I gotta be done. So let me be done just briefly this way, summarizing it this way. How should we think about the day of the Lord? Guys, it's a profound source of hope for us. Injustices have been done against you and many of them remain veiled and in secrecy and you are fearful of even having to go public with them in this lifetime for the scorn you will endure or the shame that you feel. God is going to do justly and pour out his justice on every injustice you have endured. Justice will be done, that's good news. The better piece of good news is the justice I deserve was poured out into Jesus on my behalf. There is a way of escape. And for those of you who have not yet escaped, the Father would stand with an offer to you this morning and say, run to me, believe in Jesus as your substitute and your rescuing king, and there is a way of escape for you from the judgment you deserve. Finally, guys, The day of the Lord should frame the way that we view our friends and our neighbors and our family who have yet to hear and believe the good news of the gospel. Because the reality is the day of the Lord is not theory, it is an actual day that is yet to come in the future. And those who have yet to repent and believe, those who who walk themselves into the day of the Lord without repenting will face this judgment that we read of. This should serve for us as incredible motivation. Not fear mongers, but we have the privilege of sharing with our friends and neighbors the reality that God has made a way for them to escape the very judgment they deserve in the day of the Lord. What a privilege and what a responsibility. Let's close in a moment of reflection now. Grant's gonna come and lead us in response. I'd encourage you to bow your head. I'm not gonna tell you what to pray. The spirit is present and active. And however the spirit is leading to you to respond to the message of Obadiah, let's respond together.